This is Subversity here on KUCI with Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, we've been able to uh, hook up with uh, John Toja, our guest uh, on this program, uh, originally scheduled. Uh, and so, uh, welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Dan, and I'm sorry I'm late, but uh, the London traffic uh, uh, defeated me from getting here on time. Oh, sure. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, anyway, you're here. Um, yeah, you wrote this book called, uh, you're a filmmaker, you're author, you're a foreign correspondent, and um, you've just published a new book, uh, written a new book called Freedom Next Time, Resisting the Empire. Uh, it's a timely mm-hmm. book. It's a timely book, given the war in um, in Iraq um, and Afghanistan. Um but why did you write it? Well, I wrote, I, I wrote it to, uh, it's a continuing theme of mine, and that is to look behind the facade that is erected in our own society. Um, and this, the book deals with the facade erected by imperial forces. Uh, every night when we turn on the television, every day when we pick up a newspaper, um, what is striking about what we read or what we see is what is omitted, what is left out. Um, we read about uh, uh, terrible things all over the world, uh, tyrants and demons and, uh, uh, and even our own mistakes, but we rarely read about why these things happen uh, and we ra- rarely get a sense of how connected they all are and freedom next time is a is an attempt to uh, I suppose make those connections I was struck by your especially your chapter on South Africa uh, and uh, you're saying that apartheid continues uh, most people yes. probably don't realize that well you see that's that's right uh, when Nelson Mandela was freed and uh, we saw all those very moving uh, images of people lining up to vote in 1994. Um, The assumption, um, which was reinforced, of course, by our own media, was that South Africa, it was all over in South Africa, and that uh, that the, the, the iniquitous, system of apartheid was over, but apartheid was always two systems, or it was one system underpinned by an economic apartheid. And what uh, what was over was the official racial apartheid, but the economic apartheid, the kind of thing that divides people all over the world and in the United States. Uh, on the basis of class and on the basis of rich and poor um, never really changed in South Africa. And in fact, the the policies of the liberation government, of the African National Congress government, which Mandela led at first, um, in, in fact exacerbated that division because it adopted what we know to what we what we we understand as a neoliberal system of economics. So the great opportunity that was there to um, 
to reorder the economic priorities in a country where the majority had been impoverished, culpably and deliberately impoverished over many years, was lost. Um, now, it's not completely lost because um, there's a great political struggle going on in South Africa, but it's coming from the streets again, when it, where it originally came from. So the, even though the official uh, racism was dismantled, the, the, the whites were uh, left in power in some sense, uh, in economic power. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, white power uh, assumed a black face. Um, and uh, you saw in the first few years of the liberation government the rise of a new black class um, the, uh, under a system known as black empowerment, but it came very much black enrichment where a number of highly placed individuals, for example, Cyril Ramaphosa, the former miners union head, and the man who had negotiated much of the compromise deal with the last white government on behalf of the ANC, Ramaphosa is one of the richest people in Africa now. Um, and a lot of the ANC people um, uh, became uh, extremely rich. And now you have what they call, rather sardonically, the Wabenzi tribe. Yeah. Because they all drive around in big silver Mercedes-Benz. Um, unfortunately, it's not very funny for, for the majority of people who quite rightly expected something very different. When you interviewed Nelson Mandela, did he uh, give any inkling that th that was going to happen or you know, that he was disapproving of this? Well, I think he was disapproving of... He, he took an ambiguous position, really. Uh, Mandela, in his early years, was actually courted by and himself courted a lot of very rich white people for his various charities and so on and so forth. Um, and he felt a great loyalty, understandably, to the ANC, and didn't really brook too much criticism of the ANC. Uh, in fact, when I suggested to him that um, uh, the ANC really was following, um, had really let down uh, the people who had looked to Mandela, who had promised them that it would all, the, 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 that great inequity would be over, uh, he'd be, he, <laughs> I think I got a bit of a telling off from him, but he, I think in those early years, he, um, uh, he, he was really revealed as more of a kind of moral leader and not so much a politician. I don't think he was a very good politician. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, don't, I, I don't think he understood... In many ways, I'm probably being a little bit charitable here because, and I hope not patronizing, because Nelson Mandela is an extraordinary figure, but he allowed to be put in place 
uh, a neoliberal policy. In fact, he said to me, privatization is the policy of this government. Hmm. Well, privatization um, enriched a minority, white and black, mostly white, and didn't further the interests of the majority. How about the Peace and Reco- the Reconciliation Commission? Did, did you think that process went well? Well, I think I have, I have um, mixed feelings about that. Um, it's certainly thanks to an extraordinary television program on the South African Broadcasting Corporation, which actually broadcast the proceedings every week mm-hmm. to, to the white population. Otherwise, frankly, they would, those who didn't read it in the papers, they wouldn't have known much of it. It, it was shocking to them. They were made to confront what the apartheid government had done. I think that was extremely useful. But the problem of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was all about a kind of Christian ethos of let's forgive everybody and not worry about justice, whereas my sense was that the majority of people, especially the families of those who had been, been affected, badly by apartheid wanted justice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so a number of real really villainous apartheid people were given amnesty and uh others um and and uh, and the compensation the justice for the thousands of people families who uh, had suffered uh, under the apartheid regime, didn't it, it was it was inadequate. So uh, I, and it became an embarrassment to the ANC government as well. They they because once it moved, started to even begin to point the fingers at the big multinational corporations that had been up to their necks in apartheid then it became very, very nervous because these are the very people that they were encouraging to invest again in South Africa. So <laughs> they, they, right at the end, they were discouraging the, uh, the whole process. W- would that process repeat itself in Cambodia, you think? I mean, you covered well, Cambodia. It depends. If it, yeah. I, if it, if it, um, in Cambodia, uh, the, the only reason for having, in my view, uh, a truth and reconciliation uh, or, or a tribunal, a UN-backed tribunal, which they've been trying to arrange for some years, um, would be... Uh, let me put it this way. I don't see much point in trying a lot of very old ex-Khmer Rouge, uh, 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 however much they, they deserve to spend the last few days in in prison, I do think it would be useful, in fact it would be extraordinary, if all those involved in that terrible period in Cambodia, including the United States, were put it, excuse me, sorry, excuse me, uh, found themselves under questioning, under serious examination. In other words, it wasn't simply about it's not. It's like South Africa. It's not simply about pointing the 
the finger at, at, at a few notorious individuals, but looking at those that created the circumstances from which they came. In South Africa, that has to do with the big multinational corporations. In Cambodia, it had to do with U US, U.S. policymakers like Henry Kissinger and others. The, the conditions that they created, the bombing that they inflicted on Cambodia, uh, uh, um, provided the catalyst to create, uh, with, with, with which Pol Potney's Khmer Rouge were created. How do you see the parallels with uh, Vietnam these days that's opening up to the WTO and to corporate uh, America going in? Well, they are and they aren't. I mean, they are, yes, you're right. Um, they've tried, um, they, they're playing, there's no doubt they're playing the, 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 the so-called global economy game. But um, they're not playing it, they're not playing it uh, completely. And that's why the Vietnam was one of the very few countries that survived the great bubble burst uh, in, uh, in, in, uh, in the late 90s right. uh, in, in Southeast Asia because it retained enough of uh, state involvement in the economy. Um, that's still true to a, a great extent. So they're trying to, they don't want to go the way of China, as I understand it, which has simply just become a, a sort of rampant capitalist economy run by some people calling themselves a communist party. Um, <laughs> but, so it's much more complex in Vietnam. There's no doubt that in as you say, sucking up to the WTO um, and other organizations like it, uh, that they have allowed to some of the great achievements in Vietnam, and that's where it's equitable social services, however modest in, in form they might have been, that allowed those to lapse. That's a great shame. Right, and even education... Kids have to pay for their own education, or the parents Yes, have to. they have to pay for their education, they have to pay for health care, and they didn't have to. Right. Both of those, in the past, while Vietnam was fighting a war, uh, it, it actually kept the education and general well-being of the nation uh, under, that is, under the control of the, the Hanoi government, in pretty good shape, considering the uh, the onslaught on the country at a village level, health care and education uh, was organized and it was free. Right. Um, that's been taken away from that communal level, which is, has its own democracy, even under a, 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 an autocratic system like that, which is... Um, which has run, run Vietnam. That has been taken away, and uh, people are paying again. That's a shame. 
I mean, they say that in Vietnam that uh, they follow China five years later. Uh, so that's the. Well, it depends who says that. Right. I mean, uh, the Vietnamese, the Vietnamese, have always been pretty clever about not following China. <laughs> <laughs> and that was true during the war, oh, when sure. they were meant to be part of some enormous world. Asian red plot, uh, mm-hmm. and they weren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's true now. So when you were this doing, is not to say, yeah. this is not to say there is huge corruption within the party right. in Vietnam, and that's a, a real problem. And it, it unless they uh, begin to change the system from within, there'll be there'll be there'll be problems. People. And they've already been they've already been some pretty interesting strikes, especially against some of the Taiwanese and Korean companies in the north. Yeah, there's been like um, lots and lots of strikes every year on the, against these subcontractors. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and the the government actually has reacted in an interesting way because it it's it's worried about these. It's understood that these could spread. Sure. You know, um, uh, uh, Vietnamese, the Vietnamese history can't be simply ignored. The Vietnamese are an extraordinary people, and I don't. I think the government understands that if they push the people too far into the arms of these rapacious companies, they're going to have trouble, big trouble. Right. What lessons do you learn from your own documentaries that you've made uh, in these different countries? Uh, do you, do you, uh, were you trying to open up the voice of the people to the outside world? What, what were, you, what were your goals? And, I suppose yeah. you could put it that way. But I mean, I always thought that was a basic job of journalism. I never have understood journalism to be the voice of the powerful, which it appears to be most of the time. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I always thought it was, uh, as you've just described it, um, giving voice to 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 ordinary people, uh, and and above all, uh, 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 being highly sceptical about those who presume to speak for them, and for indeed for all unaccountable power. For sure. Uh- do you um how did you get access to these countries and was it was it um did you have to fight the bureaucracy to get in well you, you spend a lot of time fighting bureaucracies but um um you know sometimes i've showed up at the airport and walked in other times i've um crept under fences at night <laughs> <laughs> Uh, with a depends which country you're talking about, really. With the equipment, it's it's much easier now, right? I mean, with like digital video and all that, it's. Do you use that, or do you still use film? Oh no, I've stopped using film for quite some time. Um, it is much easier. Um, yes, the equipment is 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 smaller, and uh, yeah, but we manage still manage with film still manage with film. I made a film secretly in Czechoslovakia huh. uh, in the 1970s, and that was all shot without lights, 
lot of it indoors because we were shooting a dissident people. Yeah. Uh, and um, it worked. So, you know, whilst I celebrate the arrival of technology, I'm not sure I'm on my knees to it yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, look at Michael Moore. He he went to Cuba and was able to shoot there. But the obstacle there wasn't the Cubans. It was the U.S. after she, he came back. Um, did you did you have to get permission ever to from the U.S. government to go anywhere? Um, well, I, only. Um, <laughs> well, you're not the U.S. Only in Vietnam, you... only in Vietnam, really, in the south, <laughs> um, uh, where they were um, where, where they were running things at right. the time. But uh, 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 no, no, I. Uh, um, you're not a citizen, a U.S. citizen, of course. So, beg your pardon. You're not U.S. citizen, so you didn't have to be subject to that. Well, I, I, it depends. It depends where it depends where you mean. Um, uh, you know, in what whatever country, I've had to get permission from various governments and bureaucracies. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, um, and you know, getting getting to places sometimes requires some imagination, really. Yeah, yeah. Which he, is the other side of being a journalist. You should be rather imaginative about how you get to places and how you find out things. Uh, recently, I've been uh, doing uh, a couple of shows on journalism and uh, the print journalism and the kind of the, you know, the destruction of that, basically, in the U.S. Do you see that happening in, in the U.K., that that uh, serious journalism has kind of disappeared? Oh, it's not Well, I don't think it's UK. disappeared. No, I don't think mm. it's disappeared in the U.S. I think it's, I think it's gone to other places. Ah. Uh, I think it's gone to the, the Internet. Mm-hmm. I think the, in the U.S. hosts some of the, the liveliest Internet websites um, in the world. Uh, and I'm not simply talking about rather gratuitous blogging sites. Mm-hmm. So some of the blogging sites are okay, but I'm talking about serious websites that um, I think they've, they've begun to take the role of, of newspapers. Um, I think the same malaise afflicts the UK as it does the US, and that is that, and this is not a new problem, and that is that journalism in the press and broadcasting is demonstrably an extension of the prevailing wisdom, of the ruling power. Mm. Um, and too many people, I feel now, are on to that. In years past, they weren't. They maybe cursed the media from time to time, but I think a lot of people now are, are very much aware that the media actually is not there to tell them what is happening and to tell them the truth. It is there to represent the opinions and voices and interests of those in power. There are many exceptions to this, I have to say. That's why I don't think it has disappeared. Mm-hmm. There are many exceptions and many honorable exceptions. Um, but 
Um, you know, from my own point of view, I've been a journalist for a long time, and I don't really bother to read too many newspapers when I go to the United States, and I don't really bother <laughs> to read too many newspapers here. Um, and that's probably as good a comment on that as any. I, I, have, I, do turn, I do turn to the Internet to find out what's going on. Which alternative papers do you read? Well, I, um, I again, you know, I, I read um, on, on magazines like Z Magazine uh, uh, in the U.S. Uh, Counterpunch, yeah, um, Nation. Although I'm not sure there's two alternatives, but uh, kind of liberal, and, liberal, uh, and others. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, there is, there is. There is still, uh, you know, there is still a, uh, a group of journals that do, if you're careful about selecting what you read, will still give you some sense of things. But I think you can, the great thing about the Internet is that you can, I think you control uh, the best of the, if you like, the mainstream press and find and find what you want there. Um, I write regularly for the New Statesman right. in the UK. Um, it's hard and, to get. Um, it's hard to get the New Statesman I'm, now here. I'm, I, I'm all for the New Statesman because they publish me. You know. But I can't. You know, I can't um, find it uh, in the U.S. Like Barnes and Noble used to carry it, like 10, 20 years ago, but not anymore. Or, or Borders. Well, but the, you see here again, and I don't uh, having. I don't want to sound like I'm sort of some techno person, which I certainly am not, but the New Statesman has a small circulation. It's, it's very famous, and it's an old, maybe been going for a long time, but it's, it's, its actual circulation is only about 25,000. But my, my pieces go out in the net, and they end up being read by, you know, probably about a million people. Um, <laughs> so... Um, you know, three cheers for technology, I suppose. You mentioned the Nation as uh, as not very alternative, and your book is published by Nation Books. Um, yeah. Do you think that the Nation is more kind of liberal than radical at this point? I haven't read the Nation a lot lately. I think it's <laughs> always been... I don't think the Nation has been radical. I think it's always uh -huh. been liberal. Yeah, 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 for sure. And it's, and it's produced some very, very fine work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, yeah. Written, I've written for the nation myself. A lot of my right. earlier work, particularly from East Timor, was published in the nation. So I don't, I don't think it. I'm not sure. I don't think it has any pretensions of being radical. I think it's been a, a liberal right, 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 uh, right. magazine. I mean, I've I've spent most of my career um, navigating my way through the mainstream in this country, in the UK, because I didn't want to work what I thought from what I thought were the margins. And so, yes, you're right. My, all my books are published by mainstream publishers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My television programs here have been put out by uh, a commercial network. Um, but that's 
that that has a history, and it has a history of of working very hard to make that happen. Sure, for sure. I don't think it. I don't think it would have happened in the United States. I think uh, there always existed, and this is diminishing here now. There existed the possibilities for so-called mavericks like myself to work in the mainstream in the UK. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, partly because there's this tradition of opposition parties and opposition voices, whereas uh, in the U.S. it seems kind of you know the same. Um, I mean, there there well, is opposition. Unfortunately, the U.K. Yeah. has followed the U.S. Mm. because there is no longer any opposition party here. <laughs> uh, we had the Democrats, the local version of the Democrats, in power for the last ten years here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so the, 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 that's gone. But yes, you're right. The difference politically between the two countries um, is that there never was a Labour Party in the United States. Uh, there was in this country. So there was a tradition, and the Labour Party was formed by the trade unions. Uh, so there was at least the tradition and hope, often forlorn hope, um, of opposition, and therefore you're quite right to suggest that in this atmosphere, opposition voices were heard, um, and it um, that tradition of opposition voices uh, is very old in this country. Um, it it goes well back to Jonathan Swift and the Chartists and. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, and and opposition through literature. It's quite interesting that in Britain there's has produced some wonderful hell-raising writers. Um, uh, if you take away Harold Pinter, there's no one left. Mm. Uh, so the you know Britain has gone through a, a kind of blairizing. So it can't all be blamed on him, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly he symbolises the 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 erosion of this oppositional tradition in this country. Are you are you based now in London? Or did, were you based in another country before? No, I've oh. always been based in. I was born and brought up in Australia, and the right. place I, I go to when. It gets cold here, uh, but I've, <laughs> I've spent most of my life in this country. Do you see yourself, uh, identify yourself as Australian or as... Uh... I don't identify myself as anything, really. I'm, uh. um, um, so I, so I was asked to fill out the form at the doctors the other day, and they were doing some survey, and I wrote rather tendentiously, I have to say, internationalist across the thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I think I did it to irritate them more than anything else. Well, there's, I mean, I guess there is some reversion to nationalism in some parts of the world. And Yeah, uh, yeah. well, yeah, but I don't have to join in that. I'm, right. I'm, I retain my Australian passport. I'm very pleased to, that I'm fortunate enough to grow up there and all that, and good parents and things, but, you know... Uh, that's a great accident of birth. I don't see why I should wander around um, waving the, the flag. flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff yeah. like that. I don't, uh, that's just, 
I've seen too much grief caused by those who do that. Where's your next uh, um, excursion to? What? What? Uh, where will you go to make uh, on the future documentary? Uh, I'm not. I'm. <laughs> um, I do normal things. I'm about to go on holiday to Italy, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm very pleased about that. Um, I'm. I'm concentrating this year. I made a film, my first film for cinema, called The War on Democracy. Yeah. And it's set in the United States and uh, in Latin America. And it, it is opened in cinemas in this country where it's playing at the moment. Oh, wow. And so I'm devoting quite a lot of this year to seeing if I can get it shown in other countries. Yeah, yeah. Primarily the United States. Uh, and that's always the hardest one to crack. Are you going to the um, festiv festival circuit here? Or... or well, First, uh, if uh, they'd have it, that's fine. It's not so easy, really. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying a, we're, we're trying a couple of uh, avenues. Um, I, I think it will get on. But uh, it's, maybe that's one of the differences, too. I didn't think there was any real doubt that it would be shown here. But the U.S. is quite another matter. Um, but they say and, with, uh, with Michael Moore... Uh, you know, show, getting all his films done and shown, that's changed the face of documentary work, uh, access. It, it, it's modified it. I uh. wouldn't go so far as saying changed it. Uh. We owe a lot to Michael Moore for uh, setting a precedent of documentaries in the cinema. There's no doubt about that. Um, but My Michael, Michael Moore is now a star, um, his films make a lot of money, therefore <laughs> people want to exhibit them. Oh. Um, uh, uh, my films don't make a, a lot of money. In fact, they hardly make any money at all. In fact, they probably lose it, I would think. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, so, you know, there is a difference there, but that's okay. We're working on it. Yeah, well, at least uh, students at UC Irvine can see your films because we we have them in our library. Um, well, they can, and thanks to a wonderful firm in in Pennsylvania called Bullfrog Films, right. um, they uh, uh, they put most of them into DVD, so they are available. And I was really delighted when I was over in the U.S. recently to find uh, so many people knew about them. Uh, when you consider that. Um, uh, that only once or twice have they appeared on television uh, in the U.S. Uh, so that's good. On the political front here, do you see any chance of change uh, in the in the presidential campaign? That I mean, uh, 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 Hillary Clinton, uh, Obama, are they all going to make any difference? Well, well, they're all the same people, aren't they? I mean, really? you know, either, either people are going to wake up to that soon. I read an article by Obama the other day which was being distributed by the Council on Foreign Relations. <laughs> uh, he, <laughs> and he was, he was, it was all full of those sort of silly phrases that, that try to mean all things to everybody and show how respectable he is, but um, it was, you know, ending the tragedy in Iraq and all that while while getting stuck into Iran. So, um, 
I, uh, you know, I don't think he's really uh, worth thinking about. And uh, you all know about Hillary Clinton, who was always a Republican anyway. Um, <laughs> and uh, so if that's how it works, um, the answer is no. Uh, it, it, I mean, there's no doubt it would be good news to get rid of Bush and that... Uh, For sure. And that, and, and that uh, extraordinary Peak. vice president. Uh, yeah. Clearly, a Cheney. very dangerous man. Uh, but the the afterglow wouldn't be wouldn't last last all that long. Uh, I feel. Does it want to turn you into an anarchist? Sorry. Do you want to become an anarchist, given your skepticism? Well, I think I think anarchism. I, you know, anarchist isn't simply uh, you know the caricature of the man with a beard holding a bomb with a long wick on it. Of course not. Uh, <laughs> although it's often thought of that way, but I think that direct, I think that we, in, in the West, the idea of, of investing any more false hope uh, in, in governments and parliaments that have long surrendered to executive cliques, mm -hmm. is, the whole idea of that is pointless. Uh, this sort of form of sentimental blackmail every few years. <laughs> uh, sort of lesser of two evilism goes on and on and just keeps producing warmongers. So I, I think people, there are a number of people, and perhaps those who still think they support the Democratic Party or do, um, I, I think they have to do some political heart-searching, really, because uh, un unless there is political action from outside these corrupt institutions, nothing will change. For sure, for sure. Well, thank you very much um, for talking you, uh, here. You, you're welcome. Delighted. And I'll keep in touch. Day. Yeah, thank okay. you. John Pilger. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, that was John Pilger, who's the author of... Uh, a book from the Nation Books uh, called Freedom Next Time, Resisting the Empire. Uh, he's a journalist based in uh, London and also a filmmaker that's done, who's done a lot of films uh, documenting war and its aftermath and the people's voice. This is Dan Sang signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show were not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. You can go to the Subversity website at KUCI.org slash tilde, D-T-S-A-N-G. Thanks for listening.